In our most recent episode, we spent time with archaeologist Paula Johnson to learn about the layers of human history beneath Seattle streets, beaches, and municipal buildings. And we talked about how our weather and natural history made her work more challenging and interesting. Well, today we're going to explore the relationship of this landscape and of nature to Seattle's ever-changing built environment. And we're going to do this by exploring the work of Seattle-based architects Ray and Mary Johnston. Ray and Mary's practice, Johnston Architects, has been around since about 1990, with offices tucked into the hillside on North Lake Avenue, just along the Burke-Gilman Trail off of Lake Union. And their practice over the years has turned out a gorgeous body of work, including single-family homes, multifamily and mixed-use projects, and public works, including libraries. Their projects across Seattle neighborhoods and actually our region are some you may be familiar with. The Maple Valley Library, the South Park Library, Casa Latina Headquarters, the Seattle Humane Society Building, and the Seattle Public Utilities Ship Canal Water Quality Project in Ballard that opened recently. Urban residential infill projects include the Fremont Lofts, the Boulders and Green Lake, and recently the Bryant Heights Mixed-Use Project right up the street from our studios here in Jack Straw in Seattle's Bryant neighborhood. And of course, there's their beautiful evolving body of work across Washington State's Metau Valley. So today, through the lens of Ray and Mary Johnston and their lifelong commitment to Pacific Northwest architecture, we will explore first the challenges and opportunities imposed on architecture by extreme weather, temperature, topography, and our regional cultures, an assessment of Seattle's colossal new development by two of its most thoughtful practitioners, and maybe a discussion about the responsibility of architects when it comes to building out these spaces, especially public ones. And stick around at the end of the show, we'll announce an opportunity to actually view some of their models and see how architects use three-dimensional models to communicate with clients and others. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Edward. Thank you both for being here. So I'm curious, what brought you into architecture? Oh, gosh. Mary? <laughs> a couple different paths for Ray and I. Um, I was an English major in college, and so I was more of a storyteller, or I was interested in stories, and I was a reader. And I thought, well, I'm not good at math, so you know, I can't be an architect or anything like that. But I also have a visual imagination. I think as a as a reader of books, I always would put myself in the uh, the scene of the book, and I can always really imagine was going on. And as a writer, you know, you have to have an imagination. You have to uh, kind of create things in your mind. So when I was at Loose Ends, I was living in San Francisco. I think it was my older brother, who's a landscape architect, said, well, you could go to architecture school. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, no, no, no. He said, you have a good imagination and you can think and read and write. And I think you'd be good at it. Wow. And so I applied to um, a few different schools, and I got into the University of Washington, and I had a good friend from college who was living here. She's from Mercer Island. So I came up and just really fell in love with the with the city. I'd never been here before and um, decided to come and met Ray in graduate school and never looked back. And what struck you about the city at the time that you arrived that made you fall in love with it? Anything you recall? Oh, my gosh. I think... Uh, my biggest impression was that it was this really beautiful city, but it sat very lightly on top of a big wilderness, it seemed to me, that it wasn't very old and it had not, uh, there was still a kind of uncivilized 
under the surface nature about it. Mm-hmm. And all the water around really represented that to me. I thought just under the surface is just wild nature mm. in this seemingly civilized place. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of combination of the built environment and then strong natural forces really fascinated me. Okay. And did that feed back into your architecture, the sort of work that you wanted to do, the the physical setting that we're in? I think so, for sure. I mean, of course, you look at the weather and you look at the moods and the lighting and the kind of atmospherics of the place, and you want to just break down the walls a little bit and bring that in. Ray, what was your path to architecture? Oh, um, well, I, I started, I was going to go into science, you know, physics and discovered that it wasn't the same in college as it was in high school. No slinkies, no volcano kind of experiments and um, shifted over to dramatic art, set design, acting, directing, and uh, and, and that was so non-determinant. And uh, my father had been a gra- an architect, my grandfather, and so I thought, well, maybe I should give that a try, found out about these programs that uh, would get you a master's degree and, uh, and applied, went to the uni- University of Washington. Where did you grow up, or where did your father and grandfather practice architecture? Uh, my my grandfather in Bellingham and Grace Harbor, and uh, my family, my great grandmother on one side mig- migrated to Grace Harbor in 1895, and then uh, I grew up mostly in Tacoma, okay. south end of Tacoma. Won't hold that against you. It's where I grew up too. <laughs> now, did your are any of the buildings that your grandfather and or father designed um, are they still standing? Yeah, my grandfather's buildings. My father was, that was a misstatement. He was a a doctor, but um, uh, mostly in Grace Harbor, um, banks and houses and things. And they're very much of their time, Mm -hmm. you know, of the the early part of the last century. Okay. Um, The Seattle PI described your firm as quietly designing a succession of small-scaled, intensely urban townhomes. And really, this article emphasized the kind of comfort and small-scale of the projects that you've done. Is that accurate? I mean, this, the sense that when I visit, because I'm familiar with your work, is that it feels there's a level of intimacy with it. It's not uncomfortable. It is welcoming. It is human-scaled. And I don't know, uh, is that just an impression? Well, is that an I think a lot of it comes from our history of doing um, a lot of single-family houses. And we don't do giant single-family houses. We try to use, a, we try to be very economical with space. And I, I don't mean that so much in just the, you know, economy for our clients in terms of money, but just no useless or wasted spaces. Is It's kind of an ethic we have. And so I think that carries over to like the townhouses, especially because they do have to be compact. But um, I think we think a lot about texture and we think a lot about someone walking down a street and encountering a building and all the details that you can take in at a walking speed rather than driving really fast. So the scale and the texture become a little more intimate. So, um, Mary, the Seattle City Council just passed a new law outlawing buildings, changing the lot coverage ratio and making basically a single family homes having to be physically smaller. And so it basically it's a it's a war against these mega homes that you see dotting. What are your yeah. thoughts about that? Well, actually, I, I think that's going in the right direction. I mean, I, I don't think you want to be too draconian about it if someone has a really big family and they need, you know, a larger house. But frankly, I think you can have, you know, just about everything one needs in 
4,000 square feet, which I think the limit is a little bit, uh, just a little bit above that. Right. Yeah. Probably have everything you need in 2,000 2, square, square, square feet. 2,000 square feet. I'd say that works and, for our family. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, part of it is we're in this climate and, and an undertone of some of our conversation here is is where we are. We, we're in this hilly city. From every hill, you can see one or more bodies of water. You're really in in Seattle, whether it's one of those misty winter days or a day, brilliant day like today, you can borrow all that space outside. So your 1,200 square foot townhouse can borrow a sense of being twice that size and really connect with the outdoors. And I think in this climate, that's just a natural way to do things. And it's and a sustainable and economical thing to do to use the yeah. natural space and air. So I lived in Chicago where it was brutal in the summer and brutal in the winter, and it really was tough to be outside. Yeah. yeah. You know. Another aspect of that, though, is if you're building in an urban environment and we are all doing our part to make this a vibrant, livable city with great common spaces, great open spaces, great parks, great libraries – civic spaces, little retail districts where you have coffee shops and places to go, then you also borrow that space. So you can live in a tiny place and then within, you know, reasonable distance, hopefully walking distance, you can find another space where you can be with your friends and neighbors. So I think that's a a, a concept that we embrace as well. So recently we had Jim Goldberg from the Red Propeller Marketing Company, and they market these huge communities, these monolithic apartment buildings downtown. And one of the, I asked him, what's the future of amenities? There's dog grooming stations and all these different things that are built into these colossal buildings. And he says that the next step is people are done with that. They want, it's how do you create amenities outside the building, but somehow tie it into the building itself in some interesting way. Yeah, that, exactly. You know, and he talked about just walking around the city and just experiencing it. And that's sort of yeah. what we have to offer maybe more than exactly. things inside buildings. That's a very old fashioned idea. And that is, you know, people are realizing that's a very good idea. So how does that idea then sort of get charge into maybe one of your recent projects or how do how do you uh, sort of take advantage of that can you, can you give us paint us an example we're seeing we're seeing our clients uh, development clients uh, building in those kind of amenities in a sense that that they're uh, curated commercial uses so you might have a coffee shop and a nice restaurant and perhaps there's a little store that sells unusual things or a a barber, or um, or maybe your exercise room isn't buried away in the middle of the building, but it's part of that complex at the base that people come and go past every day. Uh, almost every one of our projects, uh, our mixed-use projects, are like that now. Frequently, there's a courtyard or even an internal uh, lobby that's a little bigger, a little more connected to its retail neighbors than it might have been five years ago. Got it. So I was looking again on your website. So you built Base Camp, which was a 7,700-square-foot colossal house, but it was designed for 30 people to be able to sleep there. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious <laughs> about the sort of, again, the conversation about scale, utility, efficiency, and for that project, I haven't been in there. Yeah. But Well, it was a, that was a, um, a special case, really. Uh, our client, not only did they have five children, five boys, but their business demanded that they have a, a they had a lot of business contacts that demanded that they have a lot of space to have. It's almost like a mini conference center. Mm. So they needed to take people up in the mountains and it's a little bit remote. So they would have to spend the night and stay there and they would have house concerts. Um, the owner also was um, a real 
music buff. And so there was a, a there were a lot of extraordinary functions that this house had to mm. serve. And mm. then at the same time, and then they had a lot of play equipment and, you know, bicycles and boats and everything. But um, I think that we tried also to break the scale down of that project. Okay. It, it's, it almost looks like a a one of the reasons it's called base camp is because we wanted the feel of like a summer camp. And so the arrangement of buildings is sort of like that. It's almost like a little camp idea instead of one giant Got house. It. Okay. All the uh, all the bedrooms are very small. So the intention is to not be hanging out in those, mm-hmm. especially with five boys. Uh-huh. You can imagine sure. yeah. you want them out engaged with the community that's there. Well, yeah. another kind of image that comes to mind when I think of your work is the cabin, just because of the maybe some of the places that you build. The the, the even at the scale, there's a this intimacy. But also when I think of a cabin, I think of a material, sort of the physical materials, and oftentimes cabins are sort of hand-built or not even permanently affixed. What is the, in your imagination, what a cabin, what role does it play, and does it have any relevance in oh. understanding kind of how you approach? It's a small space, yeah. typically, too. And I, it cabins tend to be just the concept of cabin. You tend to have uh, authentic materials, maybe materials that are available out in a rural area, and easier to install and implement than, say, sheetrock or plaster. Uh, they also happen to be richer, and I think they resonate with, uh, with us, with people, uh, to a greater degree. You feel a little more rooted in a place with materials that you can touch and feel and understand completely that, that this wood came from that tree, mm-hmm. a tree just like that one outside. Got it. Um, and, and so I, I think there's something that has infused a lot of our work that way. We try to find that something authentic that fits in a, you know, 100-unit apartment building, just like we've always tried to find it in a in a little cabin. Well, I think of what Mary said about this, the uncivilized sort of raw nature that's just below our surface, and a cabin is a manifestation. Yeah. That might be the first habitation that happens. But how does that work in a big apartment building or something that's of greater scale? Is how do you sort of tap into that uncivilized, natural, <laughs> authentic material in a way where it's more of a production line process because of the you know, efficiency. That's, it's hard, and there's definitely that pressure. The larger the building gets to be more mainstream in your material selections and the, the kinds of spaces you have. But we're always, uh, we're always looking for that exception. And sometimes uh, we did a building called Stencil that's in an area that really was the home to a lot of famous musicians over time. And so it has a certain rhythm and syncopation, both inside and out. Ray, where is that? Uh, that's at 24th and Union. Okay. Um, uh, stencil. And uh, weathering steel and, and cedar on the outside and, and just wherever possible using those rhythms. Um, same thing at Greenfire and Ballard. Uh, the goal of that building was to be very uh, sensitive to the natural environment, to open up the asphalt of Ballard and let some of nature come through between the two buildings. And every decision we made was rooted in that idea of connecting with nature. So if you had, say, a series of, of rhythmic windows, is there something about that that would be more natural, even though it's in a very rhythmic construction system? Something that would give it uh, a special quality or flavor. And there are, there are pieces of a building that you can pull out and really detail in a way that it helps people understand how something's put together. And when you do that, that automatically 
gives people this sense of something that's made by hand. And I think even in a big building, you can do that. You know, how a balcony is connected. Or in the case of Green Fire 2, it's got a very organic-looking fence that's made out of um, rusted uh, rebar, reinforcing bar. And, and that looks, it's almost like a piece of art. And so when you can make a few details in a project that are that give you that impression or are like that, then I think that really draws people in an emotional level. So what is it about things being made by, by hand and by natural materials that's important that somehow has a, you know, what is the influence it has on the people that live or go by? I, I remember reading recently, like, in, and this may or may not be true, but in South Korea, almost everything is made of plastic, all building materials, because there's just, for, for whatever reason, trees are not commonly used construction materials. Most things are plastic. What is it about hand, things being built by hand and then also materials that come from nature that, what's the effect that it has on people? Why does it matter? Well, I think it matters. It just brings you a little bit of repose. You know, there's all kinds of statistics now about how greenery around you and trees improve people's health, not only their mental health, but their physical health. Um, and I think that can be said of something that is uh, got a texture and a tactile feel to it that's a material you can identify. You know, you know where it came from, and it mm -hmm. came from a natural source. I mean, wood is the perfect example. I think it just calms everything down and connects you to your world. I mean, it's so possible to be so disconnected now and live, you know, digitally almost, that to kind of touch something that you knew was once alive is a really profound thing. Well, your practice, where your offices are, is interesting too, right? Because it engages the lake, the trail, things around. So tell us about your practice, your office, why you built it, where you did, and what moves you made within it to connect it to its surroundings and to... So we, uh, over the years of our business in architecture, we've gotten to know a lot of people, and amongst them, uh, Val Thomas, a, a developer, uh, re kind of retired now in Seattle, uh, who developed that building and... During the time preceding that building, which was actually, the building itself was designed by Miller Hall, and then, of course, we designed our space. And uh, uh, we were becoming a little more successful and kept whining about trying to find a building. And Val finally said, well, why don't you be the anchor tenant mm -hmm. in this one? Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd been driving around looking around Seattle, and this spot uh, you could sit there on your bicycle on the Burke Gilman Trail, and there was part of Seattle Boat there, and Lake Union, and Queen Anne, and Capitol Hill, and downtown Seattle, and even a little glimpse of uh, West Seattle beyond. And you really felt like, wow, I'm, this is a spot that is uh, a special place, and it has um, it's part of the city, but it's a little bit removed. I'm not having to go down and get in an elevator and go up to the 30th floor or something. I can actually... I can even, in fact, I picked some blackberries earlier today, uh, walking the dog outside the door, and and I can watch, you know, seafair going by and and all these things from the office. Uh, so then it was a matter of organizing the interior, and it's a steel and concrete building, so we injected a fair amount of wood into that to help contain space and um, and modulate, uh, hide some of the mechanical system, things like that and uh, organize it in such a way that people interact naturally and easily. But you can also watch, you know, the kids' pioneer parade on the Burt Gilman in the fall, or you can, uh, you know, watch the Duck Dodge out mm -hmm. on Lake Union. You can watch seaplanes 
landing. You can look at the I-5 bridge over the ship canal. Uh, It's just a confluence of so many things that are so Seattle. It's the water, it's the city, it's, you know, some fauna and flora. Mm -hmm. Um, The... um, that whole sequence of things between the the sound and Lake Washington is one of my favorite experiences in in the city because it's this combination of nature and the water and being on that water is really great. You get to see a side of a city you don't see in a car even mm-hmm. walking, um, but it's a combination of nature and then this these amazing engineering feats. Mm-hmm. So it's in in some ways it's very man-made and in other ways it's just really elemental. Mm-hmm. So um it's 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 uh wonderful for us to be actually on that sequence. It's very special. Yeah. yeah. It is one of my favorite places in Seattle in restaurants is Ivor's Salmon Bar which is right down below yeah. next to the Chihuly sure. studio and it is just the it's that view it's sitting there and being able to see all that activity. Yeah. You know. Very special. That's that's one of our conference rooms, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great old school Seattle place too. Yeah, like yeah for fast sure. Disappearing. So your work includes lots of public buildings, including libraries. What are the libraries that you've designed? Well, we've been involved in about thirty of them, uh, starting with uh, some repairs way back when we were new in our careers to the Seattle Carnegies, and then after you know having been engaged with that building type for a little while, we we were offered the Lacey Library, which was our first new one. And then, um, boy, around close in, there's Capitol Hill. You mentioned South Park. There's, um, we worked on all the Carnegies, most of them twice. And then Shoreline, Richmond Beach, um, going farther out, all the way to to Bozeman, the Bozeman Library, Mm -hmm. the Snow Isle Service Center, the Freeland Library. um, Duval. Duval Library is a recent one and and one of our favorites uh, out in the, a uh, small town out there. And uh, currently we're working on a couple in Clackamas County, Oregon, uh-huh. and one in uh, in Winthrop, Washington. So you've developed some specialization? A little bit. Library, you know, right? it's, and, and, you know, it's libraries are the ultimate survival organization. I mean, here they are. How many times even in our lifetimes have we heard that libraries were dying? And they just refuse to, mm-hmm. and they come back with a new way of delivering information and allowing access to it. And, and they're the place, I mean, it's kind of obvious when you think about it. They're, no matter who you are, you can go to a library. No matter what you need, you can go there and somebody will help you in some aspect of what you need. And you don't have to pay money for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of the library. It's so democratic and egalitarian that way. We were talking earlier about if you live in a small place, you can go out into, you know, the city and participate in that kind of life in civic spaces and public spaces. Well, libraries are a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things also in Seattle here is that we have this legacy of, and I don't know if this is true in other cities, but of traditionally designed by famous architects by really great, like I'm, I'm thinking of the neighborhood in my neighbor, the library at, um, in the Bryant Wedgwood, Paul Theory, Miller Hall, I think, renovated and added a wing to it. I mean, this is a great architect, you know, 60 years ago. Yeah. Or the Carnegie's back, you know, the Fremont one. Is, so they're all architecturally significant mm-hmm. buildings. Yeah. And to me, it's so fabulous. It says a lot about our democracy that we elevate a public space that doesn't cost money to get into architecturally. 
Yeah. Um, and that, and that's a mantle I would imagine that you have to then get to wear taking yes. that on, you know, yeah. as, as architects. Yeah. Cause it's going to be around a lot longer than, than we are probably the structure. Absolutely. We, you know, sometimes you have to fight for it. Uh, but it's wonderful to have those examples and to say, you know, this building is, should last and is supposed to last and we should put some resources into it. So, you know, we're a secular society. I've lived in lots of different places. You know, I spent a year in Mexico and the place in Mexico where I could go that was in every city, it would be open, it would be the cathedrals, the churches mm. in the yeah. centers of town. And so those are spiritual places, but people could use the bathroom, socialize, beg, give charity, enter, get entertained, so many different functions or just relax and have repose. And so when I also think of libraries, have you seen Wings of Desire, Vim Vendors, the, the scene, there's that amazing scene in Berlin, it's the House Potsdamer Strauss Library where the angels are there kind of listening to people's thoughts. <laughs> Um, and if you haven't seen it, our listeners, I just encourage you, but it's an incredible sort of expose in five minutes of what can happen in a library yeah. on many dimensions, physical dimensions too, because they use the, it's kind of postmodern architecture and they use the stairs and in a really interesting way in the mm -hmm. cinema. So, um, so again, you know, the functions have changed. Where do you see these spaces going given the digital media theoretically replacing books or, you know? Well, it's fascinating. Actually, we we were diving into that topic a little bit recently with the Winthrop Library because typically, we we start with programming the library and try to trying to answer those questions, and and we seek a lot of input from different patrons. And uh, one thing we've been starting to include is uh, accommodations for motion based learning for kids. So you you kind of try to contain the noise and not squelch the activity, but make it comfortable to other patrons in other parts of the library. And we were we were talking about that in the context of books, space for books versus space for motion-based learning. And somebody said, well, the way I use the library is by browsing. And it occurred to me, well, that's a motion-based activity. Instead of uh, searching on your screen, you know that, well, in that one area, there's that book about dogs. I'm going to just look in that area. And maybe I'll walk away with a book about, you know, elephants or something. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a way your your brain searches across materials that we did a lot of fifty years ago and don't do so much uh -huh. anymore. Uh -huh. So so books are still there and people have their special way of interacting with them. And books are curated now, right? In libraries, there's always a section on Pacific Northwest grunge or yeah. food of the summer or whatever now, right? Yeah. So it's I think more so the yeah. collections are being curated is a good word, broken down and expressed in a different way. And then the way people are absorbing information and entertainment has been changing a lot because of those same screens. So opportunities for collaboration or teamwork, uh, maybe back, you know, back the old shushing librarian back 50 years ago was really the deal. You went and you didn't make a lot of noise and you mostly did solitary activity. And today you might go and meet two or three friends and uh, figure out what the book club agenda is going to be or or uh, or just hang out and, and be able to talk a little bit at the same time. And that's a lot different kind of space than the old space you got shushed in if mm -hmm. you made noise. The um, reading rooms, per se, a long time ago were basically big tables and people would sit at the table silently and read. And now when we think of a reading room, we're deciding you know, designing reading rooms in libraries, they look more like a living room. Uh -huh. There'll be comfortable furniture and chairs arranged and couches where you can sit and 
talk with somebody if you want to and look out a window. And so the library is functioning as sort of the living room of the community. So they're not yet cafes, but maybe one day it will lead us to... uh... There'll be beverages there, available. There are libraries are with little yeah. coffee yeah. shops in them okay. now. Wow. That's, a, that's a real trend. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, I just I, I, just talking about motion-based learning, I think about we, um, my son grew up in a, we grew up in a daycare over at Congregation Mishalim, and across the street was the library, the Paul Thierry. And we would walk over almost every single day from the time he was six years old or six months old. Um, and then just recently, he sort of discovered the kids section where kids could be sort of louder and parents could read to kids. It was okay. And now he's physically discovered if he walks over to the other, the Dewey Decimal Organized System, where there's like topical books on animals, um, and there's a mixture of children's books in there, and it's just set the confidence to be able to leave the children's section and I'll walk into the adult and then t- show me where the books are yeah. that he wants. It's been really something. That's, That's cool. Nice. Great. Yeah, it's great. It's all free and open every day. Well, I also ask our guests to think of a place that matters most to them in the Pacific Northwest, something you'd like to share that you go to for inspiration, or maybe that maybe a lot of our guests do know about or maybe don't. Do you have anything that comes to mind as a place that's of particular importance to you? Well, I did, ta- I did talk about the cut, you know, all the way from uh, Lake Washington to the Sound. I think, you know, it's very important to me. I've drawn it and spent, a, spent time there. Um, well, of course, the Metau Valley is really important to Ray and I. Uh, in the Seattle area, um, one of the first places I experienced that I thought, wow, I'm not in Kansas anymore, was Lake Washington Boulevard. And it was only later that I realized that um, that was an Olmsted concept. And uh, my friend, who was a native, like drove me on Lake Washington Boulevard. And it was very windy and um, the houses were beautiful and kind of tucked back in the woods and there were these gorgeous little Ellsworth story cottages uh, kind of up a ravine and then the lake was on one side and interspersed with little parks and I was so entranced by Lake Washington Boulevard and one of the gratifying things to me now is that it's relatively unchanged. Mm. I can go now and it is the same drive as I could take 35 years ago. Mm. And so that place remains special to me. Mm. Thank you. Ray, anything else to add? Oh, you know, I was, uh, this is a little bit of a hard one because there's so many places and they're kind of tied by, they're really tied by water, you know, whether it's in the Metau Valley or there are places, there's a place we call Big Rock that is on one of the highways. Nobody ever stops there. And you go, you park your car and uh, you go, through this moss, mossy boulder field a uh, couple hundred feet and you're in a idyllic uh, piece of a, a creek that has a swimming hole that has, you know, there's a layer of white rock in the base so the, uh, the water is almost turquoise in color. And, uh, and that, you know, that's that kind of space. They, I have some in, in Seattle that are like street dead ends that people don't necessarily know about, but they're there are beaches, Howell Street on Lake Washington, and and there's one on on Magnolia and various other places where you can get away from what you think of as the city or even the neighborhood. And there's this body of water, and as long as it's not on a weekend, there aren't that many mm-hmm. power boats going mm-hmm. by. It mm-hmm. really feels primal and mm-hmm. kind of elemental. Mm-hmm. I love that. Awesome. Well, Mary, you've served on the Seattle um, Design Commission, mm-hmm. and um, also past president of the Seattle EIA. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle is changing, um, and the design of our city is changing at a shocking clip, at least for those of myself that have been around for a decade or more. 
What is your assessment, like on a big picture of kind of where we're going in terms of our built environment? Um, do you give us a, a, a high score, or a low score? What are your thoughts? <laughs> we're, headed, we're headed forward oh, into some new place. So. I have to score? Okay. Well, I think... What you, what's your thought? Well, you know, I guess that I feel a little less disturbed about it than some people. And granted, I'm not. I wasn't born and raised in Seattle. I was actually uh, born in around Los Angeles and grew up in Southern California. And so that rate of change in my childhood is remarkable, remarkable as well. And so I got a little used to that, mm-hmm. you know, and was that didn't seem abnormal to me. And so when I first got here, it seemed like, oh, it's kind of slow paced. And, mm. uh, and now, of course, that's accelerated. But it doesn't, I mean, I, I actually have to say I'm, I'm excited by it. And yes, it's there. Are, I don't think we pay enough attention to uh, some of the older things that it would be nice to keep in the mix of our built environment. It makes for a more interesting urban texture to have big buildings and little buildings and medium-sized buildings and not all just giant buildings. So I think we could do a better job of that. But um, uh, sometimes there are opportunities to do that, and I always applaud it. But I Can you I, think of a good, a good one where that happened? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, everyone is, sort of talks about uh, South Lake Union, but I think there are a few spots there where there's been an old brick building preserved and re- reused and uh, adapted and I think that's um, that gives it a, some of that texture that I'm talking about. I have great hopes for uh, like Western Avenue when the uh, viaduct comes down, mm-hmm. that there's these big old four square buildings and a lot of those, they aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be mixed in with some taller buildings. And I think that's going to make for a, a really interesting urban environment. So basically, you know, I'm, I'm more excited than I am dismayed by it, frankly. Ray, we were talking earlier about Portland as a as sort of another direction or a place that you go for inspiration or ideas or, uh, you know, what's the comparison or how how is because Portland's also growing. Yeah, right? it's very fascinating, and and uh, there are, you know, there's some things. It's it's maybe not growing buildings at the same scale. They're they're a little smaller, uh, but there are also some phenomenons that have happened there. The we allowed the the uh, five over two, it's called a wood structure over concrete uh, for apartment buildings way earlier than Portland did. So um, oddly that uh, resulted in Portland, you know, by code having to build concrete and steel and brick buildings when we could do something different. And on a small, even concrete and steel, but on a neighborhood scale. Yeah, say in the Pearl District, for example, there are a lot of, the buildings that are clad, you know, on all sides in brick and things that don't happen as much here. And I think it's because of that code shift, oddly, and, and the impact on land costs. So it was more affordable to build those. And it, it, it set up a, an ethic, a competitive ethic amongst developers that I think is hmm. carrying on today. And, and not, I think we have that maybe at a different scale but when when people think of Portland, they think of these buildings that developers were uh, producing to really be design icons for for their practices and the architects that work with them. And here it's just a little a little harder because the scale we're doing. 
There's also a group of buildings in Portland that are really quirky now. Uh, and one thing I wish Seattle would do is borrow a little bit of that chutzpah that some of those designers down there have. Can you paint us a picture of a quirky uh, building uh, yeah, in Portland? Yeah, there's one. What's it called, Ray? It's the Blonde Dumbbell. Blonde Dumbbell, yeah. Yeah. Weird That's name. <laughs> and it, it's, it's uh, and not that, you know, it's, I mean, it's very quirky. Uh, you know, it's not the most fabulous building, but it's painted uh, in just an extraordinary way. I mean, it's just covered with murals. It's like someone who would have tattoos over every inch of their body, oh, okay. and, but it's a building. So there's that one. And then there's one that um, took its cue from some Gaudi buildings in Barcelona, and it's got really swoopy lines and that kind of adventurousness. And maybe those buildings are not going to um, wear well, but at, but they show a certain sense of humor uh, that I think a lot of the buildings in Seattle, uh, they could use a little bit of so that. So the message to the developers, including your clients, is to loosen up, have <laughs> yes, a little bit more fun, more sort of fun. stretch a little bit. Yeah, I'd say so. exactly. Yeah. Find yeah. that special thing about wherever you're building. And- yeah. And go for it. Go okay. for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mary, you also teach at the University of Washington School mm-hmm. of Architecture. Yes. Uh-huh. And um, for those of listeners that are not aware, the University of Washington School of Architecture has, for generations, produced really luminary architects um, that have contributed, stayed locally. I think when you grow up, you go to school in the Northwest, you don't want to go to Philadelphia. You want to stay here and work. <laughs> Although nothing wrong with Philadelphia. <laughs> no, nothing. We wrong. like Philadelphia. No, but. but um, <laughs> My dad being a, like a, he grew up in Brooklyn and he moved out west and it was very hard to move back east. So I think there's something that about the Pacific Northwest that's sticky. People with education, schooling, they stick around and they do their work here. But it's an amazing body of work over you know many decades. So there's something about to me. There's some sort of halo over that university. <laughs> um, so it's great that you're teaching there. But I'm just curious. Tell us about the next generation of architects, the people that you're teaching. What are you learning from them? Wow. What are they learning from you? I learned so much from my students. I teach. Um, a design studio. And lately I've been teaching one that uh, is sort of co-taught with three other instructors. And we have an emphasis on urban design as well as architecture. So that's really fun because we take these group of students uh, from, many of them are from elsewhere, and they're unfamiliar with the city. And we're really introducing them to Seattle. And we pick a neighborhood or area of the city to concentrate on. And um, just to watch the process of discovery in the students is wonderful. They see things that I don't pay attention to anymore because they're seeing things with fresh eyes. And what is the age range of your students in these design studios? Oh, gosh. You know, they uh, are anywhere. I teach um, mostly graduate students, but they can come in as early, as young as 22. And then my oldest students have been in their late 40s and early 50s because they have decided to go to architecture school after a full career of doing something else. And so within the same classroom or group of 12 people, you could have a fresh undergraduate 22-year-old and you can have a 47-year-old with a career in software or biology or art. So to get these two generations to talking and problem solving together is really a wonderful experience and wonderful to see. While I've been teaching, over the years I've been teaching, I've noticed too that there's a much more diversity in the um, architecture school, which is wonderful because you get people who are going to look like the cli- you know your clients out there or look like the public that they're serving. And 
just the demographics are better represented, you know, of the what the country is as a whole. And so I, it's so gratifying to see that and to see those different points of views because, frankly, architecture's reputation has suffered from, you know, being a profession of white men, frankly, mm-hmm. and to have more and more women actually not only going to architecture school but becoming licensed architects is really gratifying. What and, was the mix historically of gender, male to female, well, would you actually, say like 30 years ago? Well, in my class, uh, it was almost 50-50, which was th- the very beginning of that trend. Maybe it was 40-60. So in school, the ratio is more balanced. But then as uh, people get out of school, mm. the rate of licensure really drops off for women. Mm. So for Years and years, only 16% of registered architects were women. Now it's climbing. I think we're getting up to 20%. But still, that's a real difference between 50% in school, or more even, sometimes, and 20% So that's in interesting. Field. So what are the success factors looking forward for the people, for the this new cohort and knowing that many of them are women, at least half of them, what are the success factors that would cause them to matriculate into a career maybe that we well, should all be aware of? Well, I think we're building momentum um, just by numbers. So when you go to a firm and you see other women in leadership positions there, then it's very encouraging and you're encouraged to stay and work hard and get your license and all of that. So I think that really helps. Everyone needs role models. Right. So that's... And there's there's also a... uh, I think there's a a sea change a little bit, at least in our office, in the way uh, practice is done. And so a lot of our our staff are on flex time and some of our leaders as well. And uh, so they, you know, the, the impact of having a child or having to take care of an elder or something is, is something we look at as just a problem to solve. It's not going to inhibit your career. Mm-hmm. It's just something to work into life. And, uh, and so we're over 50% women and, and pretty diverse ethnically as well. So Mary, for as a teacher, how does that influence your practice as an architect? Well, one is that um, I, we've hired many of my students just at a very <laughs> practical level because I get the, you know, oh, you're really good. Come and work, work for me. me. Yeah. yeah, I get first dibs. But um, so there's that aspect. So a broadened group of architects within your practice that you sure, can select. Sure, yeah. Or... There's just a lot of people that have been through my in my classroom and now work for us. But um, I think mostly just the freshness of their ideas. It's a back and forth, not just a one-way street with my students and I. So I get to, uh, like, when I go to class from work, it's very refreshing. You know, it's like I get to think about these big picture things that we don't often get to think of when we're just, like, doing our day-to-day work. Can you give an work. example of, like, a, of something that came up out of your practice that was a more of a big picture thing that might have been glossed had you not been nudged by? I think mainly it's just thinking more conceptually so that if we're working on a problem at the office and then I go to class and I'm talking with my students about, okay, what's your big idea here? What's your basic idea? And because they're getting a little bit lost in the weeds on something. And then we'll talk about what their motivation is, what their big idea is. And so then I can take that and go back to the office and look at the you know, what's pinned up on the wall and say, wait a minute, we're getting away from this large concept, Mm -hmm. this large important concept. And so let's pull back and make sure we're still being faithful to that. And so that's very helpful to me. Got it. Well, good. Well, we asked our guests to bring in something physical. So did you bring something in? 
This is a, a tiny and very heavy sculpture wow. uh, by a deceased uh, sculptor named Bernard Hosey. And it's called The Knot. Uh-huh. And I'll try to describe it. It's basically Bernie took um, a couple rods of steel and found a way to shove one of them through the other wow. and then hammered them together so that they would Can stay I hold that it? way. Yeah. Looks like it weighs a ton. <laughs> Holy mo- <laughs> And uh, <laughs> so, you know, we've talked a little bit about our lives in the Metau Valley, and I, I've chaired a organization called Twistworks, and the inception of Twistworks was Bernard Hosea. Um, he was doing giant sculpture at the time and uh, was stimulated a donation that allowed us to buy an old forest service complex, which is now a economic engine, cultural center, place of arts and activity and, and things. And uh, Bernie and I and a few others had the energy to um, to see that happen, you know, over a period of 12 years. So Bernie, when he gave me that, said, this embodies our energy together. Wow. And, uh, and I thought, okay, that's, I've always thought of it that way. And I, it reminds me, you know, to, you know, to use your energy wisely to, you know, to, if you want to get things done that you're proud of, um, you have to apply yourself and, and, uh, and Bernie sure did that when he was alive mm-hmm. and, uh, and we did together. So it was fun. Thank you for bringing that. It's a very powerful sculpture. Yeah. Um, it's, it, and again, it's two pieces of steel. Yeah. That sort of penetrate one another. So, um, Ray and Mary are currently participating in the Seattle Architecture Foundation's model show at the Center for Architecture and Design in the AIA headquarters at 1000 Western. And so on September 11th, you're welcome to come and view models that people from their practices will contribute to the show. It's great for all ages, and it's something very physical. It's part of a, uh, a week-long design. Is it Design Week? It's the Design Festival. Design Festival. Yeah. So we'll post information that on our website. I want to thank Ray and Mary for being our guests. Oh, it's been our pleasure. Thank you. Join us next time for a discussion with Gordon Walker, whose recently published book with Grant Hildebrand, A Poetic Architecture, is a fascinating read. Thank you for being with us and listening to EK on the Go. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play and any other places typically where podcasts can be found. And to learn more about our guests, Rain Mary Johnston, a link to their website, a photograph of this amazing sculpture. Visit ekreg.com and then send along any requests or suggestions for future guests or if there's a place that matters to you, we'd love to hear about it. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time to hear from others like Ray and Mary Johnston about places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you.